blessing upon the reading of his word. Shall we pray? Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you now as those who are empty but desire to be filled, those who are weak but wish to be strong, those, Lord, whose joy so often is limited, small, and insignificant, and yet we want to be filled with wonder, amazement, and thanksgiving that our praise of your name begun here this morning might echo through every word, every relationship, every work, every day that you give us upon this earth. Lord, bless us as we open this word and fulfill our prayer, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Then turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 1. We're going to begin reading at verse 18. Verse 18, that's page 1131. 1131 in your pew Bibles is the page where you will find our scripture reading this morning. Our text is the first so many verses, 18 through 25, eight verses But we'll read to verse 31. We have heard how the cross of Calvary in this Lenten season exposes our need, shames us, lowers us, humbles us so that we see our sin. We have seen the glory of the Messiah. We have seen His saving work and the power of His love. But now what about our witness to the world? What does this message of salvation do for us in terms of our walk in this life That's what this Easter weekend is going to focus on, beginning here at 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and, Gen- or both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord." As for the reading of God's holy word again, our text is the verses 18 through 25. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, our Lord, with only a few words, Paul manages to say so very, very much. For in verse 23 of our text, he writes, But we preach Christ 
crucified. Five words in the English. A simple statement. A faithful summary of the ministry not only of the Apostle Paul who was so miraculously converted on the road to Emmaus when Jesus says, why are you persecuting me, Paul or Saul? Not only Paul was the minister of this word, but every one of the disciples, every one of the preachers that the church has ever ordained who are faithful to their task, any who are called to stand before God's people and speak the truth of His word, all of their messages, every sermon ever preached can be brought down to those five words, but we preach Christ crucified. Five little words, a simple summary of the ministry of the church and yet a lifetime of truth, a truth so deep and profound, so remarkable that you cannot exhaust its wonder on one Good Friday morning service. You cannot exhaust it on an Easter weekend. You cannot exhaust it in a year of Sundays. You cannot exhaust it in a lifetime of Sundays to truly plumb the depths of this love. Think of what the Apostle Paul elsewhere writes concerning this love of God. Think of his prayer for the Ephesian church. When he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant you to be strengthened with power so that through His Spirit in your inner being, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be full of all the fullness of God. The Apostle Paul prays for his church then. He prays for the church also now, even as we pray for every member and everyone even present here today, believer and unbeliever alike, that you would come to know not just a small bit of information about an event on Golgotha outside of Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago, that you would enter through that doorway of the event to see the glory and the wonder of a God so rich in love, so great in grace that you cannot exhaust His goodness towards you. Too often we impoverish ourselves by failing to hear and to see this grace. Too often we shortchange our own spiritual development when we pass quickly over the events of Good Friday and the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's why years ago Martin Luther was once asked, or at least it's said that Martin Luther, nobody can really completely confirm whether this is true or not, but Charles Spurgeon said it, so it's as true as you're going to get. Uh, He said, uh, Luther was asked by one of his congregants after the service Sunday morning, he said, Dr. Luther, why is it that you constantly preach the gospel to us? Every week, all we ever hear is the gospel. All we ever hear is Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. 
We get it, he said. We get it, Dr. Luther. Move on. Give us something a little more practical. Give us something a little more interesting. Why do you constantly preach the gospel, Dr. Luther? To which Martin Luther replied, because you keep forgetting it. And I will preach it every day so that you never forget it. That is the truth. We lose sight of this glory. We fail to see too often the majesty of what this means. We find more often than not our happiness, our contentment, our goals, our priorities from the culture around us and not from the cross of Calvary. We begin to think that what our world says is valuable, is valuable when it is dust and meaningless and that the cross is empty when it is the fullness of God's love for us. And so on this Good Friday, we want to again sit for a moment at the feet of Paul and hear him preach to us Christ crucified, he, the message of Good Friday, and hear again why its wonder and glory must ever be before us as God's people. Indeed, that is how we'll take our text and our theme This morning we preach Christ crucified, beginning with the power of the Word. For Paul says, we, or the Word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now to understand why Paul writes those words, we just need to take a bit of a step back, and then a bit of a larger step back. One small step, and then one big step. The small step takes us to verse 17 where Paul has written, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. Paul says, Christ has sent me to preach the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom. That shouldn't be misunderstood, because Paul is not suggesting there that he didn't want to be winsome in his presentation, that he didn't want to be compelling in his speech, that he didn't want to use every gift that he'd been given to declare the glory of God to all men. But Paul has in mind particularly uh, the day and age in which he lived, in which that phrase eloquent wisdom comes to mean something of the culture and of the philosophy of the Corinthian community of the Roman Empire, which, which empire valued those speakers, those rhetoricians, those thinkers who could win people not by virtue of the truth of their message, not because they were giving something compelling and good, but because they could amaze you, because they could overwhelm you, because they were appealing in their ability to speak. They could say nothing, but say it with such beauty that you would be convinced. Indeed, it seems to me that we have ready examples of exactly what Paul means by eloquent wisdom in our culture and day right now. For if we look at our politicians, if we look at our uh, thinkers in universities and leaders in our thought world, you hear them at times speaking absolutely nothing, but in a way that's very compelling. It is eloquent wisdom, but it is meaningless and purposeless. And Paul says, oh, I could do that for you. I really could. I could get up before you and with the tools and techniques of the rhetorician, I could speak so very compelling a word that everyone would leave the service saying, that was brilliant. That was brilliant. 
But if I were to do that, says Paul, I would empty the cross of its power. I would empty the cross of its power. The story's told again of Charles Spurgeon that a man went to listen to him preach one Sunday afternoon, first listening to another preacher, another very famous preacher at the time in London. And he went to hear that preacher preach in the morning and came out of the service and said, what a preacher, what a presenter. And then he went to hear Charles Spurgeon at the London Tabernacle in the evening and he left the service and said, what a Savior, what a Lord. Paul says, I will not empty the gospel of its power because the word of the cross, it's folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. To those who are being saved, it is the power of God. You need to understand here that Paul, when he speaks of the word of the cross, he's not speaking of some historical fact. He's not just saying that Jesus died on the cross. He is instead speaking of the full significance and wonder of what that word means when he says the word of the cross. The word of the cross is not a single word. It's not a short word. It is a lifetime of words. It's the revelation of the incarnation of the Son of God who came into, the fle- into our flesh having committed to redeeming us from His Father's will in eternity past. It is His having to come because of the weight of our sin and the demand that God's justice be satisfied because we had so foolishly rebelled against God and made our lives miserable and our eternity destructive and hellish. And Jesus says, these people cannot save themselves, I will save them By my sacrifice. The word of the cross is the death of our representative. It is the one who covered us by his pinions. Who bore the judgment that we might escape its punishing effects. All the redeeming work of Christ. All of the gospel message. All of the word of life is found in that phrase. The word of the cross. Now Paul says that word of the cross, I know, says Paul, I know that it is folly to those who are perishing. The word folly there is the word that we use in English for the word moron. It's the same word. I know that it is moronic, says Paul, to those who are perishing. It's laughable. There's clearly wrong, there's something wrong with people who believe in this salvation through the crucifixion of a man upon a cross. This is just the death of another dreamer. This is nothing eternal or of significance. You infuse mythology into this event. You are fools, says the world, and has the world said, said forever. Those who are perishing, says Paul. Perishing is there a a word that describes not people who are already eternally lost, but people who are on the pathway of rebellion. Those who are walking away from God, who are refusing to acknowledge God. They hear the gospel. They sit in a church service like you do. They hear the message of the cross and they say, what a joke. can, Can you imagine people actually believe this sort of thing? But you see, for those who are being saved, those who are in the process of being saved, those who are turned around and now walking uphill to Zion, it is the very power of God. The gospel message is the very power of God. 
Because those who place their trust in this word of the cross experience what it is that God accomplished on Good Friday so long ago. They are freed from the shame of sin. They are freed from the fear of death. They are made more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And Paul says, I will not empty the cross of its power I will not use eloquent words of wisdom. I can impress you. I can wow you with my rhetorical skill, but it would empty the cross of its power to imagine that compelling speech that eloquence can do what only God can accomplish by the power of His Holy Spirit through the preaching of the Gospel that is to empty the cross of its power. Now that's no easy thing to maintain. What Paul here says, he has to say because the Corinthian church is falling away from this good news of the Gospel. Falling away from the cross of Calvary. Falling away from the Good Friday message. Here we need to take a bigger step back. And we need to see the Corinthian church and the Corinthian city and the Corinthian context. The city of Corinth was a profoundly immoral cultural context. In fact, in the Roman Empire, to Corinthianize, which was a phrase people would use, was to describe someone who had done something so perverse, so wicked, it tingled your ears. That guy, Corinthianized, they would say. Because Corinth was so associated with sexual immorality, with depravity and wickedness, And the congregation there was struggling, was struggling under the pressure of their world. The opening chapter of 1 Corinthians already indicates to us that there was in that congregation disunity. There was a sense that some were better than others, that the rich were to be preferred to the poor, that the really holy ones had a special class unto themselves. They preferred compelling speech. They preferred preachers with their very expensive Savile Row suits who had lovely degrees that they could put behind their name. The congregation there was allowing the culture of their city to shape their spirituality instead of standing distinct in their walk with the Lord. The waves... And the storms of the immorality of their world were crashing upon that congregation and wreaking havoc. Which is to say that the Corinthian church was a very modern church. The letter to the church in Corinth is a letter to the church in the 21st century. We live in no less an immoral, no less a wicked, no less a careless and destructive culture. Our world revels in harm and death and cruelty. And we are called in this context to stand for Christ, for the Christ who's crucified. We are called in this culture to bring the word of that Savior naked upon the cross, beaten and dead, the One 
who suffered such indignity and whose pain was of such shameful significance. We take lightly the image of a cross. We put it on our churches. We put it on our jewelry. For 300 years, the church shuddered at the image of a cross. They would not put it on anything. For it was the mark of shame and death. And now we are called to bring a word, a word of that Savior, a word of the death of a man 2,000 years ago, a word of a man who suffered so much. We are called to bring that word to our world. No easy task. Imagine a young person being raised in our lovely and quiet covenant community, being raised in a believing home, in a faithful school and church, and they find, suddenly find themselves deep in the deep end of our culture as they attend university. And suddenly the truth that they've been surrounded with and that has supported them all the days of their lives is systematically torn down and rejected and denied. And they then come home for, to church for a weekend. And they are again told, no, 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 no. Jesus Christ and Him crucified Good Friday. That's the key. That's the heart of the truth. That is the hope that we have. I think, what about all this sophisticated argument back at school? What about what my professors said about the history of the church? What about what the cultural context says about the message of salvation? What about the deconstruction? What about... On and on it goes. What do we do then? How do we minister the gospel to these people? How do we minister the gospel to a world like ours where the message of the word is so foreign, where the things of the faith are so unusual? What do we do when we want to win sinners for Jesus Christ and see them freed from the chains of sin and death? What do we do in a society like ours? Well, what many churches do is adopt the approach, if you can't beat them, join them. The church church tries to prove her worth by taking up social justice, by changing their ways of worship to a more modern setting, by shifting the focus of their sermonic message from a heavy-handed one about sin and salvation to one of self-fulfillment and personal happiness. The Apostle Paul understood this tendency. He understood that the Corinthian church was facing this very, very thing. This is not a new experience for the church, by the way. This has been going on for thousands of years. It was going on in the days of Corinth. And the Corinthian church was facing this very same temptation. They wanted to win the world, but they they were going about it all the wrong way. And against this tendency and to remind the Corinthians of the foundation upon which they stand, Paul refuses to alter his message, refuses to change the declaration of salvation by grace through the cross of Calvary, refuses to soft-pedal the ugly image of our dying Savior on Good Friday. Because he knows it is not what the world, what the perishing want to hear, He knows it offends. He knows it pushes people away, leaving them thinking that the church is filled with mentally weak people. But he also knows what the world does not, that the word of the cross is the power of God to save. That it is that word that is spoken into the hearts and minds of God's people so that they come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ by the dwelling indwelling of the Holy Spirit. What does the confession of our faith say when it asks, where does this faith 
by which you are united to Christ and thus inherit eternal life. Where does this faith come from? The Holy Spirit, it says, works it in our heart through the preaching of the Word. That Word of salvation in Jesus Christ. And what does Paul say to his Thessalonian uh, readers, to the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1? He rejoices, does he not? He rejoices in their coming to salvation. He says, We know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You heard the gospel, and by its power the Spirit worked in you faith. Paul doesn't say, I can trick you into salvation. Paul doesn't say, I can... I can create an environment, an emotional experience that will draw you into faith. No, Paul says, I will declare you to you the ugly truth of the crucifixion whereby your own sin is exposed and the glory of God is revealed. I will tell you about Jesus and what He's done because that's the power of God to save you. Not eloquent wisdom, Good Friday, the gospel message, Jesus dying for our sins. Oh, to be sure, the church's message must be winsome and relevant. It must be relatable, I understand that. But it must never deviate from this simple truth that salvation for you today comes through the work of God who saves His people by the death of His Son on a hill outside of Jerusalem. And nothing the world says will ever overcome this. Paul offers for us in our second point the proof of this word or for this word. Verses 19 through 25. For it is written, he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning. I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish? The wisdom of the world. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. In these words, Paul provides three supporting proofs for his opening conviction that it is the cross of Calvary, the message of Good Friday, that is the only word the church should speak. He quotes, first of all, from Isaiah 29, verse 14. He uses the word of God. He says, you want to know, church, why you should always, always hold forth this message, offensive as it is, un. Uh, appealing to our world as it is, culturally irrelevant as our world thinks it is. You know why you should speak this word? Because God, God in Isaiah 29 verse 14 wrote, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. When the Israelites at that time believed that their political wrangling would be a surer way to defend themselves. That's what's going on in Isaiah 29. That's what's going on at that time. Israel's thinking we can get out of trouble. We can secure our safety 
by our political wisdom. We'll make the right choices. We'll make the right alliances. That's what will save us. And what God was saying to Israel at that time was, you're fools. Put not your trust in princes, nor your strength or your trust in the legs of a man. Paul says, or rather the Lord says through his prophet Isaiah, you think that you can save yourself, but I'm going to show you you can't. I'm going to destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. God's Word confirms for us that the way to security is not by finding new and fancy decisions and plans and purposes, but rather through the simple message of salvation in Jesus Christ. And then Paul calls out, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Here Paul calls out to the philosophers, the intellectuals, the brilliant minds of his day. Where is Anamander? Where is Pyrrho? Where is Zeno? Those are you don't, you don't know who they are, do you? Oh, those were very famous philosophers, also in Paul's day. You don't know who they are because they have been forgotten. Because they have been cast into the dustbin of history. You may have new philosophers that you hear and believe. You might think that Freud is of some value. You may think that Michel Foucault is important. You may think that Bertrand Russell has the brilliance to, to, to show us the way to understand life. But they too are consigned to the dustbin of history. Where are you, says Paul? Where, where are all these men who at one point stood and said, People, people, I have the answer. Even as today our politicians, our thinkers, have the answer. Oh, we have the answer, they say. It's all about oppression, you see. It's all about intolerance, you see. It's all about freeing the self to be whatever they want, you see. And don't worry, there'll come a time when nobody will remember the names of those who have brought about this emptiness and this foolishness. A hundred years from now, a thousand years from now, we will not remember the name of our leaders. But a thousand years from now, the gospel will be proclaimed. The church will continue to minister And the faithful will continue to gather in praise. Indeed, that's why Paul uses as a third proof not only the Word of God, not only the culture of his day, but also the church of Jesus Christ. Paul points out the impossibility of a believing community. I mean, Jews demand signs, he says. They want proof, tangible proof. Give to us evidence that this is true. And Greeks who represent intellectual superiority, they want, they want to be given wisdom. Together, these two groups demonstrate that human nature stumbles over the cross of Calvary because it seems neither as a proof nor as wise. Instead, it exposes our depravity and humbles our souls so that we are required to acknowledge our desperate need of this Savior, the cross slays pride and eliminates self-worth inherent in man. It breaks us down so that we might be built up in the image of the One who has redeemed us. 
And no man willingly accepts such a word about themselves. No man. If you come to them and say, you need to be brought to to death so that you might come to life in the cross of Calvary. No one would say, brilliant, yeah, that's a great idea. Even the church at the time fled, didn't they? The disciples fled. No one stood. Oh, the women at a distance, but no one knew what Jesus was doing. They were terrified at this message. They were ashamed to be associated with Him as Peter taught. Nothing's changed. So why is it that from nothing, from one man dying on the cross, there are now billions worshiping today on this earth? Why is there a company of the redeemed, both Jew and Greek, who by the power of God's Spirit through the preaching of the Word do believe? It's because of the message of the cross. It's because... Jesus died for us. From the testimony of God's own word and the culture itself and the very evidence of the church of Jesus Christ on this earth, the apostle demonstrates that the true wisdom of the church is holding forth to the world this hope and this truth. Indeed, for all men, for us too, the daily need to be reminded that our hope rests not in the abilities of men, not in the political machinations of a party, but in the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ. And that's why the church needs to cling to these foundational truths daily. The Word of God needs to forever direct the pathway that the church takes. The the Word of God shows us that the struggle of faith is not new. The The message of salvation is not a recent development. Long as humanity believed that they could succeed and ascend to the blessedness of heaven without the assistance of God. Even today with all our politicians, we're told that the way to a utopian happiness is if we just let them make the right decisions and reorganize our culture. Let them define sin and restrict it with their thought laws and speech laws. They say just let us be God and we will bring heaven on earth. And yet, look around us. Crime is on the rise. Drug use is on the rise. Broken homes and all of the social ills that come with them are on the rise. Social programs are overwhelmed. Because for all our world's wisdom, for all their promise of sunny ways, the truth is far darker and more dismal. And God has been telling us that for ages. To be sure, there is no end to the arguments developed by think tanks and presented at conferences that tell us that the wisdom of man is great. Adam Smith and Charles Darwin and Karl Marx told us they could see life without God. John Lennon encourages us to reimagine the world without the oppressiveness of sin, without the church's heavy message of condemnation. And as each of these thinkers is inevitably relegated to the dustbin of history, their ideas are shown to be empty and destructive. Just as the influencers on Instagram today that are captivating and capturing our hearts and minds and telling us that the way to happiness is by following them will eventually be relegated to the dustbin of history. Our world never stops and says maybe we should find a better way. Maybe all of these reeds upon which we have placed our confidence and which have pierced our hands and caused us pain 
Maybe we should put our trust in something more solid, something more eternal, something more significant. But they don't. They just push on, finding new thinkers or repackaging old ones, telling us this time, oh, this time Marxism will work, don't you know? And yet against all of this stands the gathered congregation of God's people. The gathered congregation that holds forth the good news of the gospel that speaks to its children, to its grandchildren, to its adults, to its grandparents. You're a sinner in need of a Savior and He's come. Let's praise the Lord together. Each Sunday again and again, God has worked salvation for you. Each Sunday again being seen, being shown the power of salvation, the love of God in Jesus Christ who died on the cross. And repeatedly, studies begin to show that those churches in our current culture who stand upon the foundation of God's Word and hold to the old, old story and preach the message of salvation in Jesus Christ alone, those churches who do not give in to the cultural context, but not only survive it, but stand against it with the message of hope in Jesus Christ. Those churches do the strangest thing. They grow. The churches that strive to please the world and to make themselves appealing to the culture that do not stand upon the foundation of God's Word inevitably decay and disappear. But the church that says, we preach Christ and Him crucified who revel in the message of salvation, who are not ashamed to say this is our Savior, who declare His power to save is the hope that we have. Those persons who humble themselves by the Spirit's indwelling power and put their trust in so countercultural, so radically different a message, those who say, this Jesus, despised by the world, is embraced by me. Those families, those families that stand around the gospel. Those parents who hold before their children the truth of Jesus Christ and call for genuine commitment to Him who apply this gospel, the Good Friday message, to every moment of life so that when their children come home and, and maybe are disrespectful for mom and, to mom and dad, there comes a moment where mom and dad say, listen, we have been redeemed from disrespect. Jesus died for disrespect so that we wouldn't have to live in that anymore. When they are bullied or when they bully, mom and dad say, but Jesus Christ's blood is what gives us meaning and value and worth. When they are pursuing their career, when they are pursuing their partner for life, they point to the cross. You have been purchased. You are loved. Follow Him. Trust His will for your life. They take the Word and they apply it across the board. Churches that daily, routinely, weekly hold forth the Gospel in all of its varied glory. It's like a diamond that shines in so many different ways. Those who preach the Gospel of good news, who share the crucifixion story, though it may offend, though it may trip up, Though it may make even some of you here today offended. Can't believe these people, all these people believe this. Those churches, the Lord lifts up, preserves and protects, and draws unto Himself for an eternity of life in heaven and on earth. 
Because Good Friday is not just a day in the church's calendar. It is the message we preach every moment of every day of everything we do. With Martin Luther, we say, we keep forgetting it. So we're going to keep preaching it until Jesus returns. Let's thank him for that in prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, the cross of Calvary, what we celebrate today is offensive to the world, is something that our culture wants nothing to do with. And we feel that pressure. We feel that pressure, Lord. We feel it to soften the word, to shape it a little more appealingly, to use eloquent wisdom to be more worldly. Help us, O Heavenly God and Father, to ever stand by Jesus, to recognize by the Spirit's power the glory of His saving work and to identify with this Messiah, to say, I'm I'm such a sinner. I needed Jesus Christ, the Son of God incarnate, to die on the cross for my sins. I'm so hopeless. My only hope is the death of the incarnate Son of God on a cross outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Help us, Lord, not to hang on to our pride, but to slay it and to embrace life in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.